Prosopagnosia, the inability to recognize faces, occurs in up to 2% of the population. Most people struggle with it alone, unaware it even has a name. The stories in this podcast can be painful and hilarious. Join us for an exploration of the people, science, and realities of this condition. Maybe you have a hard time remembering faces. Come for the stories, stay for the coping techniques. My guest today is a UK musician and vocalist with eight albums under her belt that totally defy classification. She calls it hobo pop. Kirsty McGee, welcome to the show. Hello. And uh, you have no idea how hard I've had to work to say Kirsty instead of Christy. Oh, well done. You must get that a lot. <laughs> I do, especially yeah, especially with uh, Americans and um, people who live in Holland or France or somewhere, because. Yeah, I think Kirsty is more more unusual, I think, worldwide anyway. Yeah. Well, we were just laughing a little. Uh is uh you were uh I was teasing you online. <laughs> that's what it was, yeah. I was trolling you. <laughs> <laughs> because uh I, I put a request out there uh for anyone in the prosopagnosia community that'd like to come on this program. Uh, and I got lots and lots of people who contacted me. You were one of them. This was pre-corona, so it mm. does feel like six years ago. I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you said, if you're interested in a face-blind musician, I'm up for it. I took a quick look at your profile, and I thought uh first image that popped in my mind was, uh, you know, a UK housewife uh, who probably teaches piano lessons on the side. <laughs> and I wrote it down and put it in the list and just finally got back to you. And then I Googled you, and then I found your website, and then I started listening to all your albums, and I have been just blown away by them. Thank you. Uh, it's really been, you know, a phenomenal last week of listening to your music. Um, but yeah, you are, uh, now you're not going to like this, oh, but dear. you are kind of a big deal. It sound, <laughs> it seems like to me. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I, it's a career that never really got off the ground, but I'm not that bothered. I mean, I do what I love. And for me, that's the most important thing. I think, um, I was, I was mentioning with, to a friend earlier that I haven't got the, um, capacity for artifice. It's just too much hard work. So I think that's probably that, that, and maybe, I don't know, laziness mean that, you know, it's, it's not, it's not easy to kind of reach the heights, but it's not always necessarily the best place to be. It's quite nice to just carry on at the grassroots and actually make sure that what you're doing has got a lot of integrity. And that's been my focus, really. Well, the music, and I started listening in reverse order. So mm -hmm. I listened to your last album first, then second to the last. Um, the music is really eclectic. I mean, uh, that's an obvious descriptor for it. Um, you know, when I listened to your latest album, uh, so so the first two songs, right? Uh, here's my description <laughs> of the first song. It was, uh, you know, in my mind, I thought, country and western, puff the magic dragon. Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> and... You think, okay, so it's an al that's the album, and then the second song comes on. It's a t it's totally different. Even sounds like a different singer, and you know, from my perspective, because much deeper. And I thought, uh, okay, this is like sultry speakeasy. <laughs> and then as I tried to classify the them as the songs went on, at some point I just gave up <laughs> because there's so many different varieties and sounds. Okay. Um, and you call that hobo pop? Could you describe your music or your uh, your philosophy? I. 
generally call it hobo pop. And what I mean by that is uh, music that doesn't have a home. So it's homeless music. It's music that doesn't live very comfortably in any one location. It likes to kind of spread its wings a bit to explore and um, to find it finds its way into lots of nooks and crannies of music. If it's music, then I'm interested um, and I'll play with it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my approach to it. It's it makes for quite an eclectic um, collection of songs and every album is different as well. So yeah, it depends on who I'm working with at the time and um, what the songs require because I'm kind of in the service of the song at the end of the day and um, I can't control what I write, so I don't. <laughs> but you don't play the piano, you play <laughs> uh, the guitar and and the saw, the musical saw, is that how you describe I that? I do, yeah. I also My first instrument was the flute. So um, recently I've been doing a lot of flute arrangements and most of my albums have got at least one track where there is a flute section or a wind section. Because um, I also play the bass flute, which is a brilliant thing. It's one of the longest instruments in the world, I think. <laughs> it's, it's the longest instrument that's played to the side. So it kind of curls back on itself. But so, yeah, I started off in orchestras playing flute um, and piccolo, in fact, at the time. And gradually, when I was in my teens, I decided I wanted to be in bands. So I was in various indie bands at university and things. And um, I guess it's 20 years now um, since I started trying to kind of play music as a, as a living. Um, yeah, I, try, I tried being a, a journalist for a bit, didn't like it. Um, it's that damn integrity thing again. And um, yeah, then I, I ran away from home, went down to Penzance in Cornwall and lived above um, a health food shop, sold health foods for a year. And then I came back and started being a musician. <laughs> so 20 years as a professional musician, mm -hmm. this is how you pay the bills for... It is indeed, yeah. 20 years. Mm -hmm. You have eight albums. Uh, this style of music, I would imagine, does not fit <laughs> in any radio slot. Uh, oh, it's, it's been in a few. Yeah, it's been in a few. Yeah? Yeah. But, but The Living, does it typically come mainly from touring and live performances? It has done in the past. Yeah, it has done. Um, although um, in 2013, I had uh, quite a major... Um, piece of luck, I guess. A song made it into a Donny Boyle film. Uh, the English director who um, made films like uh, Train Spotting, and also the guy who did the 2012 Olympics in London. Um, so he, he put it into his film Trance. And so that's generated some income over the last few years. That's definitely, uh, I think that's the way forward is, you know, to try and for musicians to to try and kind of work within the film industry, because the live music industry, certainly in times of COVID, is not happening. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the main problems um, for me has been the cost of touring in America is extremely high. Um, it's like £3,000. Um, is that about $4,000 or something to get a visa? Um, so I've always had a connection with America, wanted to come out and, and work over there. But yeah, the cost is prohibitive. Um, and by comparison, the um, American artists coming over here up until recently have paid about £100 for a visa to, to do some work over here or all over Europe, really. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, it means that I've been 
kind of stuck in touring the European market. Um, and that's going to get more difficult after Brexit. So, yeah, <laughs> it's going to yes. be fun for you guys as well, for the Americans coming over here. I think it's going to get more difficult, unfortunately. So let's hope that live music manages to weather this this latest <laughs> catastrophic storm. <laughs> well, otherwise, we'll have to continue watching people like you on Zoom. True, which, <laughs> which is a, a fate we, we don't even want to talk about. <laughs> It has been funny seeing comedians attempt to do shows on Zoom. That doesn't work at all. <laughs> it's just so hard when you don't have the kind of audience feedback. It actually right. means a lot. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you're on a podcast here called Face Blind. Mm -hmm. uh, I assume that means you have some trouble recognizing faces. Oh, Could yeah. Could you describe <laughs> that? Uh, what you told me yesterday uh, sounded like you may be in the top tier of severity even. Um, Possibly, yeah. yeah. Um, it's something I've been aware of acutely for the past 15, 20 years. And I think it's something I've had lifelong. Um, it's developmental prosopagnosia, which means that I think I've always had it. It's Obviously, it's to do with part of the brain um, not working as it ought to. And it's, yeah, it's it's a difficult thing to, to live with. It means that I don't recognise people um even even if i'm seeing if i if i saw you in the street tomorrow jeff i wouldn't know who you were and and that's having looked at you on a zoom call for you know however long we're, we're sitting here um if i saw you five minutes from now um in a crowded room i would struggle to pick you out of that crowded room um and if you put a hat on or put some glasses on i wouldn't have a chance in hell so <laughs> Yeah. You're more severe than I am. Uh, I think that's clear. But uh, sometimes when I talk to people uh, that are more severe, I question myself like, gosh, mm. do you even have it? And you have to remember that it is there is a, a spectrum of severity. Mm. Uh, so today I was uh, just trying to remember your face from our video conference yesterday. And I realized, yeah, no idea who, what she looks like. You know, if I saw, yeah, if I saw you on the street anywhere mm -hmm. after this, I, I definitely won't recognize you. <laughs> it's a peculiar thing because having lived with this my whole life, it's my norm. And so yeah. I can't imagine what it must be like to be able to recognize somebody. And so films and things like that are a nightmare mm -hmm. because you'll be watching a film and casting directors they have tastes and they you know there's no way of me telling whether the person that's got the blonde ponytail that came into the script at two minutes um is the same person that has the blonde ponytail which is you know doing something at eight minutes there's no way of telling could could be the same person could be a different person and suddenly another person with a blonde ponytail comes on and i'm like okay oof <laughs> yeah yeah mm. In 15 to 20 years ago, when you say you became aware of this, was that just a, a, a realization that other people clearly did have this innate ability to recognize people? Or did you read an article and specifically hear about the condition and that other people had it? I think the first I read of it will have been around about eight or nine years ago. Um, I was aware of it as a kind of quirk before that. Um, partly because um, in my in my music work, I would turn up to places and sometimes I would make embarrassing um, faux pas in that I would be walking through a crowd and I would suddenly go, oh, look, there's such and such a body. And people would go, 
what are you talking about? That's not them. So I would get fake recognition as well as mm. um, not being able to recognize people. I would convince myself that this was a certain person and it wasn't. Um, but um, um, many years ago, I used to work with my ex who was my musical partner as well. And we used to go and play concerts and we were on stage together. We were together all the time. And he fulfilled a very useful purpose to me because he had good facial recognition skills. And so we would walk into a room and he would brief me as we were walking into the room because he would look at somebody and he would go, oh, look, there's Jack so-and-so and he runs this club in this area or, oh, look, there's a sound engineer. He's doing this or he's doing that. And I, it was like being guided. It was like somebody, I don't know, being my guide dog or something like that, I guess. And so I've, I guess I knew about I knew how bad it was because I had to have somebody prompting me. And when that person isn't there, I get very lost. I do feel very lost. With your ex, mm. uh, was that um, an active, open arrangement? Pretty or much. It just, yeah. So you spoke about it. You, yeah, yeah. He, he noticed that you couldn't recognize people. Yeah. And- and mentioned it to you and you said, oh yeah, I've been that way my whole life. Is that how yeah. that happened? Um, and I think part of why I think I've been like this my whole life is that um, when I when I look back, I'm aware of the fact that I've always had um, a particular thing for hair. And so when I look at my first crush, when I was like, I don't know, five years old or something, what I remember about him was his lovely golden curly hair. And then I think back to um, sitting on a wall when I was on holiday somewhere and being fascinated by this girl around maybe a couple of years older than me when I was 12 or something. And I distinctly again remember her hair. And I think as I went along, it was the people with the cool hair that I wanted to be friends with or else the girls or, you know, the, the people in my year at school um, who were from a different racial group than me. So I was always wanting to be friends with the ones who I could recognise. And I think that makes perfect sense. If somebody's easier to recognise, then, you know, it, it just makes your life so much easier. You don't have to second guess yourself when you walk in a room. So I think I'd learnt tricks and tactics to make my own life easier. And having somebody walking into a room with me who could point out what was going on within that room was really useful. It, yeah, and that's it's definitely it's definitely a a good argument for being in a relationship. <laughs> How aware were your uh, parents uh, and si- did, you, did you have siblings? No. Or how how aware was your family of this condition? Did they just know it as a quirk, or was it totally internal to you? I'm not sure they ever noticed. I don't know if they ever noticed. Um, I'm I'm a, an only child. I've got two step brothers. But um, no, I don't think anyone in my family, until maybe eight years ago or so, um, maybe 10 years ago, I started talking about it as something I was finding difficult. And I think probably people were like, oh, don't be silly. I'm not very good at faces either, which is the thing you hear <laughs> so many times. And um, yeah, it's I've, I've actually started being very open and out about it because for me, I think it's quite important to... Um, to be open and out about it because it can become a problem 
Um, least uh, most of all, um, I guess I feel like it's affected my ability, my confidence, and my ability to be in a large group of people, because it's really disconcerting not to know how many of those people are familiar and how many of those people I've never met before. Um, and, you know, make, making silly mistakes like walking up to somebody and going, oh my, you look very familiar. Uh, where do I know you from? And, you know, you've known them for 20 years or something and they go, oh, well, that's that's quite offensive actually. So you've got to be careful. Um, Don't you remember my guitar work on your last album? Exactly, exactly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's that kind of relationship that is really difficult, yeah. <laughs> So if if uh, your severity, you were saying if you're at a party and you went and opened the door for someone, how long do you think it would be before uh, that memory decays? 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I think the time it would take me, and I, would, I will be careful, I will stand there and I will look at the person and I will try and memorize the eyes. I will try and memorize the hair. I will try and work out what they're wearing and I'll try and remember that. And then I will turn around and I'll walk up the stairs behind that person and I'll get to the top of the stairs and there'll be a room full of people and I'll look around going, oh, <laughs> I don't recognize anyone in this room. <laughs> so uh, you put yourself in a position where you really do have to interact with people, yeah. you know, lots of people in mm -hmm. order to make a living as a musician. Mm -hmm. um, I think of kind of two ways of recognizing people. Uh, so I'm not quite as severe, so maybe only one of these is open to you. But um, in that situation where I were to meet someone at the door and I know, okay, in the next uh, finite period of time, I need to be able to recognize this person. I just ignore the face for the most part, unless they have a, a big uh, scar of some kind. Mm -hmm. um, I instead start looking at their clothing. You know, I, you know, I look, do they have a white collar, a blue mm -hmm. collar? You know, is there something distinctive that they're wearing, an earring, you know, anything like that? Those are terrible things to use for recognition. Absolutely, yeah. Because, Long term. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you haven't got a chance next time you meet them. <laughs> but, uh, but if I have to put something in short-term memory, that's, that's my go-to. Oh, you know, uh, that's interesting because that might be something that is also um, seasonal because I live in a place where um, generally people are wearing coats. Mm. And so they will change their clothes within five minutes of my meeting them. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way because if you're in a warmer place, they're likely to come in what they're wearing and not, and not change their clothes immediately. That's interesting. Mm. Mm. What about yourself? Do you recognize images of yourself or yourself in the mirror? Generally, I do. Although I think probably my idea of what I look like is very different. But I think that's maybe a woman thing. I'm not sure. I think I think the way that I see myself is is rather slimmer than I actually am. But um, yeah, then I suddenly see a photograph of myself and go, oh, wow, is that what I look like? Mm. Um, that's more about body image, I think, though, than um, yeah, yeah prosopagnosia. And uh, close family um, and partners, do you are you able to eventually remember someone? <laughs> I can't. That's the really strange thing. And I often end up wondering and second guessing myself. And I think, do I care about these people more than I care about other people? Mm. Um, is it because I've known them all my life that I find them familiar? 
you know, I generally will recognize the musicians that I work with. And I would love to know why I can selectively remember. Maybe I've got a certain capacity for remembering, you know, a group of people. Because if I meet somebody, even somebody I've only met a few times, I will often remember them if I've worked with them on something to do with music. Maybe because music has been such a vital part of my life. Um, I will recognize my family, um, even out of context. Although, having said that, um, my stepbrothers have got kids. And if I saw the kids out of context, I probably wouldn't recognize them. So, yeah, I can recognize close family members. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's... Um, I think it is repetition, Maybe. I, I, I really think that's uh, the key for close family and friends. Uh, it's repetition, not of the face necessarily, but of uh, the entire picture of the person, mm-hmm. the collection of attributes, mm-hmm. the way they walk, the gait, the gestures. The voice. Even, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The sound of them, the smell of them. <laughs> I think, you know, with, with partners as well, um, I have always gone for peculiar looking people. I love people mm-hmm. who've got like big beards or, you know, long hair or I, I will always go for the one in the room that is the kind of interesting looking one. That's just always been um, I, probably the same as making friends when I was a child. It was just looking for the person that was the most interesting looking. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, so you mentioned that you have a lot of anxiety uh, probably rooted in prosopagnosia uh, in your day job. In fact, mm. yesterday you mentioned that you were contemplating changing the nature of your work absolutely, uh, because yeah. of this anxiety. Mm. Could you describe what's going on in your mind there? Mm. Yeah. Well, a f- couple of years ago, I played a concert in um, Berlin and it was for somebody that I'd met a couple of times, but I wasn't confident that I would recognize them at the airport. And that was going to be a house concert. So I was very much dependent on that person. And I stood in the airport, uh, like a little lost kid. And I was waiting for the person to come and pick me up. And unfortunately, I don't speak German. And at that point in time, I thought anybody could come now and tell me that they're that person. And they might be a similar shape to that person. And I will go, hi, lovely to see you again. Um, and I guess I'd be lying. <laughs> but, mm. um, but it does make you aware that there's a certain... Um, worry about whether you will be able to recognize the people who are actually going out of their way to help you. And there's a shame that's attached to that because if somebody has been dealing with you over the phone and organizing a concert for you, and they've done a lot to make that concert happen, and then you turn up and five minutes after they've introduced themselves, you go and talk to somebody else and and pick the wrong person, um, that can be really embarrassing. Or if you meet a member of the audience who has been solidly to your concerts for the last 10 years and you Mm. misrecognize them or else you introduce them to somebody else and get the name wrong or you just can't even begin to recognize them, walk straight past them, it it does become eventually quite soul-destroying and upsetting because I'm not and not, I'm not somebody who would deliberately blank someone. Um, 
Okay, I mean, everybody has moments where they might do that. But <laughs> generally, I would say that I am someone that tries to treat everybody with um, compassion and with respect. And it feels disrespectful to walk past somebody who has, you know, because I guess I project my own feelings onto the situation. And if you're doing that night after night, and you have several days where you maybe don't play your best, and then you misrecognize somebody, you begin to doubt your ability to do your job. And I don't know, I think it does come, it comes to a point where last year when I was um, touring and this this began to happen a few times and luckily I was with a very good friend of mine and it got to the point where I was in tears almost every day because wow. I was frightened of causing offence. and it, Frightened of what? Causing offence to people. Uh-huh. I was I was just scared that people would think worse of me because I wasn't able to recognize them and I just lost my confidence. So when So so I so you're in the green room in that situation mm-hmm. with uh the bandmates that you're about to go on with and is everyone in the room aware that you're emotional and do they know why? If I am working with a band then yes, yeah, generally. It's as I say it's something that I'm really quite open about, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the audience is aware. And for a while, I actually had some little cards printed up with um, the name of the condition. Um, And I would give them to people at the merchandise desk. And I would say, look, I don't want to cause any offense here, but next time I meet you, I won't know who you are. And we've just had this wonderful conversation, but unfortunately, I just, I don't know who you are. And it's, I don't know, it's painful sometimes. And it does make me very sad because I don't want to treat people with disrespect. Um, but I often don't have a choice because those, whatever the things are that <laughs> help me to recognize people don't work properly. Mm. It's it's like saying to somebody, it's like saying to somebody, try harder. Um, try and write that sentence a bit better if, if they're dyslexic. You know, it's like, you know, we, we expect a lot of ourselves. And I think... Expecting ourselves to recognize members of an audience over, like, I don't know, a, a three week tour or something every night in a different city every night, it is expecting a lot of yourself. Um, so I guess I've got to give myself a little leeway there. But I was so hoping you would come around to that because <laughs> what I hear is you saying, you know, I, I think I'm just not going to go out on tour anymore because it makes me feel so uncomfortable. And that seems like such a shame. I mean, I've just discovered your music. And <laughs> I would love to like walk. I can imagine myself walking down some steps into a, a lower level, uh, you know, sp- music, musical space uh, in some city and, you know, being surprised to walk in and seeing you sitting there with a saw playing the, <laughs> and singing these songs. Uh, I mean, I, I hope that you could find a way to just let that go or forgive yourself for making these mistakes. It's going to happen. <laughs> I think I hope. maybe. I mean, I think what I'm what I'm decided I'm going to do is I'm going to try and distance myself from the live work for a while. I mean, I haven't got the choice at the moment, which is actually brilliant because there aren't any concerts happening. Um, but I think that's I think now a few years ago, 2015, I I was feeling a similar way about music, but music will always drag you back in if it's part of you. Um, I remember somebody saying to me, it's all right you saying that you're giving up on music, but the music hasn't given up on you. And 
I went across the States. Um, I did a little bit of traveling that year um, and found myself um, in positions which dragged me back into music where suddenly I would meet someone and they would say, oh, you play this or you can sing backing vocals. And quite random situations meant that I ended up in the recording studio many times over that trip when I was actually trying to go incognito and not be a musician. Mm. It just doesn't work. I don't think I can do that. But the ironic thing is, um, since deciding that I didn't really want to tour very much, I've probably made much more creative work um, because I'm trying to learn how to um, pitch my songs for film and television. Um, so I'm getting my existing catalogue and I'm contacting music supervisors with a view to using that music in their films, but also producing new music um, with the same intent. Um, and that's been exciting because that's the that's the good bit. That's That's the exciting bit of the work. And that's the bit that's got pushed to the side through being a DIY artist because I spent too much time researching venues in Hungary or something. And, you know, I spent so much time researching the venues and then trying to get a tour together. I just wouldn't play music and I wouldn't listen to music. And I just, yeah, I guess I was losing music a little bit in the mess of being a musician. So, yes, uh, I will... Uh Agree. The music sounds very cinematic to me. Mm. I think it'd be a, a great bed. I can imagine it. It's uh, dark and misty <laughs> and swirly. Uh, I don't know. Those are good descriptions, but... Good words. Yeah. I think anything which um, deals with the emotions is a good word. Yes, um, I'm... Yeah, <laughs> me and my mum were having a, dis a discussion this morning and I was saying, oh, you know, I'm... Me, me and you, we're very similar because we're both um, centered around our emotions. And we were talking about another person that we both know. And we were saying, and that person is absolutely the opposite to us. But that's no reason to judge them. And we were just both of us saying, you know, it's there's just so many approaches, aren't there? And the emotional approach is definitely the one that I take. So it's not surprising that you're finding these very emotional kind of um, reactions to the music that I make. Because... That's, I, I find that the emotions are the best way to actually get in touch with people because it's like a shared language. It's an unspoken language. And so when I write a song, I will try to um, appeal to the different emotions. And I might try to evoke a scent or um, something visual because I'm quite a visual person as well, um, which will allow the listener to get into the song. And I think what we were talking about yesterday was the idea of a song as almost like a portal where you could step inside it. And for me, the best written songs are the songs which will allow anybody to feel comfortable and to find their own meaning within that song. Cre creatively with songs, uh, I wonder if you've noticed your lyric choices it being influenced at all by prosopagnosia. The example, uh, you know, from this podcast is Jason Werbeloff, a sci-fi writer and philosopher, um, had written lots and lots of books before he realized he had prosopagnosia. Uh, but looking back on it now, he sees things like he'll have, um, a character who he refers to, uh, as eyebrows, for example, <laughs> <laughs> and that's brilliant. So, the, <laughs> and I can totally relate to that. 
Um, Have you noticed anything or have you been able to think of any examples of that? Or is this uh, so much more uh, sensual, visual, non-face focused, the writing that it doesn't come up? It's it's definitely sensual, the writing. But um, I think the only thing I can think of immediately that that springs to mind is that there are a lot of references to hair Mm. in my songs. So I, I will often talk about somebody's hair or somebody's skin or somebody's eyes. It's usually something that is a physical characteristic rather than actually, I don't know. I mean, it would be quite difficult to describe somebody's face in a song, I think, anyway, um, because a song is such a small vessel. Right. It's just, it's a, I think Tom Waits describes a song as a bagel that you can put in your pocket and save till later, which I love. Um, it's, you, you fill it. You've got to fill it. I, I go back to the same metaphor again and again. When I was a, a kid, my mum used to send me out with a matchbox and she used to give me a list of things to fill that matchbox with. It was a brilliant way to keep a child occupied. And so she would say, I'd like you to find a flower and the roundest stone that you can find and, you know, a blade of grass. And she would send me out to find all these little things and um, fill this matchbox. Now, I've carried on doing that into adulthood because that's exactly what I do when I make a song. Because a song is a small thing, but I don't know if you know what a TARDIS is. Have you seen Doctor Who? Doctor Who, Who? yeah, yeah. Yeah. So a song is also like a TARDIS, depending on what you pack into it. Yeah. Because a TARDIS is um, basically it's an old English telephone box. And when you walk into the TARDIS, it becomes an immense spaceship, which allows you to travel through time and space. I'm not a Doctor Who fan, but that's what I understand of the TARDIS. And the reason why I say that's like a song is that uh, for me, when you do your job as a songwriter, you've got a little tiny matchbox and you open the matchbox and you enter a universe um, because every single word that you fit into that song, into the, that tiny structure that is the song, every single word um, is packed with meaning. So you won't just use the word red, you'll just use the word ruby instead. And immediately the mind starts flashing off into various synapses and it takes you on a journey, which the word red would take you on a different journey. So every word that's chosen for the song is chosen for a reason. And I find that really fascinating. I find working in such a contained space is quite liberating in a strange way because it enables you to convey a lot in a few words, like a haiku maybe, Um, yeah. So you're talking about um, the lyrical content and probably the phrasing. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think the other reaction I had to the albums that I've heard so far is, those are all top notch. I mean, really amazing, but you're mixing it with amazing music as well. So the collaborators that you've brought on are over the top. I mean, this is like very high quality on both. They're amazing. And I guess the funny thing about that, um, and I, I guess I'm going to go back to the housewife metaphor now, because, um, I often think of myself as a bit of a granny driver, um, I'm sort of driving on a on a Sunday and I'm driving very slowly down the middle of the road. And um, I, I do think that some of the musicians that I work with, because they're jazz musicians, they're just supremely talented. They're stellar people. And um, 
I always think I'm basically making um, some sort of sports car go at four, you know, four miles an hour, <laughs> because these guys are capable of so much more. But I think the idea of being quite minimal, and I guess the same with the songwriting, the idea of being quite minimal is quite important to me, so that everything that you put in there is really important. Um, and it's the things that leave out, the notes you leave out are also very important. Um, I learned a lot about silence in music from listening to Randy Newman, um, because he's a master of that. You will get to, um, he, what he understands about being a lyricist and writing a song is that you will get to a point in the song and you will leave a line out. And not only will the listener complete that line in their head, because they've already taken the information in to do so, but it will also give them a deeper, it will pull them deeper into the song. And so you can actually kind of grab them by the collar yeah. and pull them into the song by leaving things out, which is fascinating. You're not trying to kind of shout them down. You're actually whispering to them so they've got to lean in a bit closer. So I find, I find that quite exciting and interesting, really. It is very minimal too. Um, I was thinking of songs that hit me uh, in particular, and one was on uh, These Old Demons, which I think is two albums ago. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And that was uh, A Plague, also fitting for today. <laughs> yes. Um, this is a song we were talking about yesterday where I thought, sure. uh, I, I imagined that uh, you were recording at a barn and someone walked around <laughs> the farmyard picking up random items yeah. and saying, we're going to use this for percussion. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's Howard. That's um, Howard Jacobs, who's an absolutely extraordinary musician. I've never met anyone quite so extraordinary. And um, he plays, he's one of those rare people who can pick up anything and make music from it. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, it doesn't matter if it's like he's standing in a bar and there's a straw handy, or if he's walking down the street and there's a hubcap, he'll make music from it. And I love having people like that who've got um, ingenuity and mischief and... Um, are fascinated by the world around them, who've got all their senses open. And that's um, that's why Howard, he works a lot with me. Since those old demons, he's worked a lot with me. Um, he's kind of the foil to the kind of the smooth, gentle kind of sound of the voice. He's the one that kind of makes all the crazy noise in the background. Um, he's the animal to, I don't know, Miss Piggy or something. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, he um, he also play he plays reeds, so he plays clarinet and saxophone. Um, you'll have heard him playing saxophone on uh, a track called Magnolia, which is a beautiful soaring solo. That's the same person who is playing all the junk in the background wow. of a plague, which shows you his the extent of his musicality. It's just like woof. <laughs> so yeah, I, I love working with musicians who humble me. I think it's just the most wonderful thing to do. <laughs> And it's a collection of uh, revolving uh, musicians. It's the Hobo Pop Collective, uh, yeah. you know, roughly mm -hmm. named. Um, so when you start working with someone new, uh, do you just immediately have the conversation with them about face blindness? Or do you let them come to it eventually? I am probably too open, so I probably would have the conversation pretty early on. Yeah. Yeah, I would probably just, you know, if, if I'm going out, I, I, I began working with a, a brilliant double bass player called Sam Quintana, and um, 
I've got quite a collection of double bass players. It's a particularly um, favourite instrument of mine. And I went out with Sam to play a concert um, last year sometime. And it involved kind of going in a car with him and, you know, going out to a, a venue and things. And I was quite lucky with Sam because Sam is particular looking. He's very tall and he has um, a, a bit of a beard and a very particular type of hair. And so I, I, I was, I was all, I thought I was going to be all right with him, but I did want him to know that this was something that affected me so that he could, in essence, do the same role as my ex. And if I started going towards the wrong person, he could redirect me towards the right person and say, oh, look, here's the promoter. <laughs> so yeah, that, that was useful. But I do, I am very upfront about it. Yeah. I often wonder about, um, you know, Stephen Fry. I often wonder how he lives his life because he's also um, prosopagnosic. And yeah, I often wonder how his career has gone. It's interesting to know how somebody pretty much at the top of his game, you know, could could still have this condition. It's interesting. Yeah, I noticed that. I read a little bit about him. Uh, I don't think he's as well known on this side of the Oh, ocean. okay. Oh, he's, he's uh, household name here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me more about uh, your double bassist. So that conversation in the car, uh, mm-hmm. how did you how did you approach it with him? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I guess I would normally just say to someone, oh, um, by the way, there's something you need to know about me. And that always makes people worry. And I haven't yeah. worked out a better way of saying it. But at the moment, that's probably what I would say. I'd say there's something that you need to know about me if, you know, if we're going to hang out together. And that's that I'm face blind. And and they go, well, what's that? And they say, well, I have a lot of trouble recognizing people. And this can manifest even within moments of meeting them. Um, and they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, I have trouble with faces too, because mm. that's the stock re- response. And you see, well, actually, it's a neurological issue. And then you just kind of say, it's got a name, it's called prosopagnosia. You what? What? Mm. <laughs> so I think... That sounds like you have some terrible cancer. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Yeah. It sounds like an awful <laughs> disease. But um, I think people, until you actually have the conversation about it, people, number one, aren't aware of it. And I think number two, they don't realize how it could possibly impact you. Because for them, it's just like being a bit bad with faces, which most people have experienced. But I think when you tell them it's actually a neurological problem, um, and, you know, it's to do with the way that the brain, I think it's, my understanding is it's the way that the brain thins down as you're growing up or something, or else it can be, it can be triggered by a traumatic event. That's my understanding of it anyway. Yeah. They say that, uh, it's, Less activity in a very particular portion of the brain devoted to yeah. the fuchsia fascia form, I believe it's called. Okay. Um, yeah. I do. Into, I, I will have uh, some researchers on to dive deep into the, the science of it at some point. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. I, I, I talk with most guests about, you know, how do you come out, if you will, uh, to mm-hmm. people and what, you know, what phrases tend to work the best. So is my way common or is it... Um... <laughs> Is it uncommon? I'd be interested to know how other people I think you're at come a, out about it. It sounds like you're at a phase like me where, you know, when I originally started telling people about it, I would, you know, sort of beat around the bush too much. And mm-hmm. the key is to be very concise and quick and very quickly say it's, uh, you know, it's a medical condition or it's a neuro- neurological 
condition. And then people uh, more, it's like, how quickly can you get them to understanding and taking it, taking it seriously? But most people I talk with, though, the, the focus of this question is how are you telling people that you're going to interact with um, such that they're going to understand when you see them again uh, mm. and not feel slighted? Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a future uh, goal. But there's also, <laughs> I think, just immediately removing all the anxiety that you have yourself in the moment yeah. because you've revealed that. But the interesting mm-hmm. thing I like about this double basis story, what was his name again? Sam Quintana. Sam Quintana. 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 So yep. with Sam, uh, you were opening him up, opening up to tell him you have this condition, proceeding asking him or drafting him to be being your your seeing face human being my eyes <laughs> yeah yeah i never thought about it like that yeah that's very true and so he took the job my seeing face human i love that idea <laughs> it's like a guide dog isn't it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah he was he was very you know very helpful <laughs> What's up next for you? So, uh, I've, you know, you've, you've alluded to the fact that there can't be any touring right now. Uh, you're working mm-hmm. on trying to get into film and music. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think you could ever give up the live performance? I don't know. That's quite difficult. Um, I think I'd like to minimize it. I think my probably my attitude at the moment is that if somebody asks me to come perform then I'll consider it. But I think I'm going to stop proactively trying to book work. But that might have implications in terms of my earning a living. So it's going to be interesting to see kind of where that takes me. Um, It depends on, I mean, realistically, I'm used to living on um, probably what people would see as quite a low income stream. And that's quite useful because I think if I did get into... um, synchronization, which is music for film, then I wouldn't need to have many syncs a year to begin to bring in enough money for me to live in alongside um, the money that comes on from um, performing rights, royalties and things. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's a little bit watch this space at the moment mm. because with the COVID, but also with um, my own um, sort of change in direction, I'm, I'm definitely a work in progress, but I, I'm not going to stop making music. And in fact, I'm making a lot of music. I've got some side projects as well as doing my own stuff, which have only begun um, sort of in March. Um, and that's quite exciting to me to be working with other people, to be um, collaborating online, um, making different kinds of music to the music that I might otherwise be making. Um, Can you yeah. do that simultaneously? Does is that effective? I don't believe you can. Um, I had a, a duo. I think it's getting easier now, and it will be there eventually. And there's probably a lot of people working on that right now. Um, I've not. I've not found the way myself. But so you're bouncing tracks back and forth then with collaborators. Yeah. Yeah. So. It, I've got a, a trio that I'm working with at the moment and um, one, the the guy in the trio will send me um, some music 
And then I will layer up, uh, I will write a vocal over that music, some lyrics and uh, what's called a top line, which is lyrics and a tune. And then I will maybe, you know, stack up a few flutes if I, if it calls for it. Um, again, you know, just working for the song. And then I'll send that over to the woman, the other woman who's in the group, and she will begin um, post-production. So she will actually take it apart. She'll take my files apart and put them back together and maybe add some extra vocals or um, some keyboard or something. And so it's kind of, it's being engineered three ways, which I quite like. It's it's quite a liberating process to be involved in. But on the other side of that, um, a few years ago, I had a collaboration with a very um, talented American singer-songwriter called Robert Garson. And uh, we recorded an album. We recorded it in his studio in Joshua Tree. Um, and that was, you know, it was, it was great to do that. Um, but it was mainly as a, as something we could sell when we were touring, but we've been talking about collaborating, but even rehearsing with that project back then, um, was almost impossible because of the latency. Mm. I don't, I don't feel like I'm noticing it in my conversation with you, but I'm assuming that when you play instruments, it's just, it just messes with your timing. I'm not sure. But I mean, I know that people are, are beginning to do online concerts and things, and presumably it's moved on um, because things well, do move well, so quickly. Well, even if you had perfect latency, I mean, I I see musicians as they're playing live, just glancing at each other mm. at just the right moment, and it seems like <laughs> an awful lot of information is being uh, conveyed with that glance. That- Funny you should say that because. Um, Many years ago, one of the best concerts I ever went to, it was, um, I guess it was as much a performance art piece as a concert. Um, but a, a guy that I knew at the time called Edward Barton, um, he he wanted to find out what happened when musicians couldn't visually communicate with one another. And in order to do that, he took um, a number of large old-fashioned wardrobes, he placed them around the venue and into each wardrobe, he placed a jazz musician. <laughs> and then, you know, when the audience all came in, we were all standing around and between the wardrobes. And he said, right, okay, start off then. And it was just brilliant because obviously one of them was a trombone player and the, the end of the trombone kept coming out of the door of the, <laughs> of the wardrobe. So, um, yeah, but that was, that was a great thing. They did very well. <laughs> So I may be wrong, but I kind of perceive there are three things going on with this change in career. Uh, one being, uh, boy, it would be nice to have this passive income stream that comes from uh, film work. Mm-hmm. Um, two, there's the anxiety around just dealing with prosopagnosia when you're on the road. Mm-hmm. Um and that bringing you to tears, it's very serious. Um, and then third would be the minutiae of trying to book tours, mm-hmm. which, you know, I would take those. Uh, obviously, I agree with number one. The last one, I would think, uh, you know, be good to have a booking agent and you just outsource all that work and take that off your plate so you can be the mm-hmm. musician. I've had that in the past, but um, unfortunately, unless you're generating a, a decent amount of income, nobody will touch you and it doesn't matter how many albums you've got out it doesn't matter um who's interested in what you do at the end of the day if you're not bringing in five six hundred pounds a night for a show which i'm not um 
it isn't worth their while getting on board. So I, I, I generally tour as a duo um, and often I'll tour with another songwriter and we will split everything 50-50. So if I'm going out and I'm booking a tour and each evening I'm maybe managing to raise between 150 and 300 pounds, depending on the show, then I will get between 75 and 150 pounds per show. And yeah, so that's that's an interesting one because it means that you've got to book a lot of shows before you can make enough money. And yeah, it's 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 not enough to be able to find that 20% cut for an agent, unfortunately. Um, I'm just just not big enough. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to do it if you're going to tour. Mm. Um, but the anxiety piece, um, I mean, you, you said that it's been uh, eight to 10 years that you've been, you've decided to be very open about this. And usually I find that people are just discovering that they have it, that it exists, that it's not just them. Mm. And they have this moment where they can start telling everyone and this weight comes off their shoulders yeah. almost overnight. But the weight hasn't come off your shoulders enough. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I, when I first heard the word, um, I guess that must have been about, maybe, maybe it was more recent, maybe it was six to eight years ago that I could have first got a label for this. And, um, and I think what prompted me to try and be open about it was that I met a, a very nice woman whose name I even still remember, which is very, un very rare for me because I do have memory issues as well. But, um, I remember this woman's name because I walked into a room and she had an eye patch on. <laughs> and when I walked to her, um, she immediately handed me a card and the card on it said, I have this eye patch on because blah, 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 medical condition. I'm like, ha, huh, okay. Because she thought that everyone was going to treat her as though she was being very pretentious, as though it was some weird hipster thing, some affectation. And she didn't want to have to explain it to everyone. So a little card with all the information on, very helpful. But I think there does need to be more understanding in public about the fact that not everybody is um, able to um, neurologically behave in the same manner as everyone else. And it's getting better. It's definitely, yeah. uh, there's definitely getting to be more understanding. But I'm not sure, even when people say they understand the condition, whether they fully understand it, because I don't think I can understand what it's like to recognize people. So, yeah. Interesting point. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think I can understand it. I just, um, I can't imagine how it would be automatic. Mm, yeah. <laughs> right. Cause you have to work so hard to try to, you know, hold someone for that 15 minute party, mm -hmm. right. Okay, <laughs> or 15 yeah. minutes at a party. But, um, well, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, lovely perspective. Where can people find this music? That's the thing that I want to leave, you know, uh, uh, and aside, mm -hmm. I mentioned this to you yesterday. My favorite thing about this podcast so far is I'm being introduced to so many interesting people, things, ideas, works of art. Uh, Jason Werbeloff, I've read all of his novels at this point. Uh, so great. I'm looking forward to checking that out. Yeah, it sounds great, actually. I really want to read about eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, um, and this music... 
I don't know how it would ever have come across my bow mm. if not for this opportunity. So uh, I want to expose everyone to it. Where should people go to find your music and how would you recommend they attack it? Is my <laughs> approach best going in reverse order? Um, I don't know how you would attack it. I mean, I think probably um, Spotify is good because you can yeah. just go from track to track and you can skip the ones that you're not really connecting with. Um, and it's it's like the weather in Cornwall, which is a very small piece of England. You know the weather's going to be different in a couple of minutes if you just wait. And it's the same with the songs. It's going to be an entirely different type of song if you just keep flipping. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's. I think probably the album that I'm most proud of would be well, apart from the the last one, which I I do think is a lovely album. Um, Those old demons is probably the one that I'm most proud of because mm. I. Um, worked with um, a guy called Mark Rebo, who's the guitar player for Tom Waits. And I've been a big Tom Waits fan almost my entire life. And so his playing is just something special. But it's, for me, it just pushes it into some entirely other realm. I still have to pinch myself with the idea that I actually worked with this person. I don't believe it. But um, mm. if people want to find what I do, I suggest they go to www.kirstymcgee. And that's not Christy, that's Kirsty. K-I-R-S-T-Y-M-C-G-E-E.com. Um, you can also find me on Bandcamp um, and, yeah, just Spotify. But it's K-I-R-S-T-Y-M-C-G-E-E. And my band is called the Hobo Pop Collective. That's H-O-B-O-P-O-P Collective. I think uh, I might be wrong on this. I was trying to dig up Spotify. I think you even have the generic playlist that Spotify puts together for uh, different okay. artists. So this is uh, Kirsty McGee. I think there's a this is oh. Kirsty McGee, which generally means they'll take like uh, you know a popular set of songs and okay. jam them together. So if I can find that, I'll provide a link to it as well. Um, well, I've got um, apparently I've got twenty eight thousand listens a month, which for me sounds like a lot. I don't know if it is, but 12.7 thousand plays a month are in Turkey, which is strange because I've never been there. So there you huh. go. But And England doesn't even appear on the list. So, <laughs> Well, think about this. 2% of, uh, of your audience probably has a hard time recognizing faces. <laughs> well, <laughs> well I, all I can say is, you know, big strength, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Stay strong. Right. <laughs> Kirsty, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, if love for you is conquest, I can see you've reached your peak. Seems like they only taught you curses when they taught you how to speak And all your angels are departed With the burning in their eyes And oh Lord, I'm glad that I'm gone Seems like an ill wind blew you Where the ill winds tend to blow it picked you up and it threw you like you were a seed to throw. 
Like a seed you burrow down And like a seed you grow And oh Lord, I'm glad that I'm gone And you walk so tall As though no one For more info on this episode or prosopagnosia in general, visit faceblindpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.